Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. If uh, you haven't done so already, go ahead, grab your Bibles, open them to First uh, Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22. Let me go ahead and read those verses for you. First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, uh, we come to you today uh, before a, a, a confusing and dense passage of Scripture, and we pray, Lord, for, for wisdom and understanding. We pray that you would, would open our hearts, open our minds, that you would speak to us clearly through your word. Give us light Give us understanding. Help us to apply this to our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, today's passage is kind of a long journey through some strange and perhaps unfamiliar territory. Uh, And my concern is that the, the deeper we go into this thick forest of questions, the more likely we are to get lost in the details and perhaps even lose sight of the big picture. So I want to start today with the end in mind. Okay, we're going to start at the end. I want you to think of this as kind of like a guiding light to uh, help us along the way, or like a, like a guide rope that we can hold on to so we don't get lost. So with that in mind, I want you to look with me here at the end of verse uh, 21. We're going to see here Jesus Christ. So the end of verse 21 and then into verse 22 says, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This verse, this this image is the one that I want you to keep front and center throughout the sermon today. Christ is victorious over everything, over death, over sin, and over the entire demonic realm of evil spiritual activity. He has no equal. He has no uh, opponent, no challenger. As a result of his resurrection, nothing and no one can compare to the absolute sovereignty over all things. Evil will be punished. Death will be overthrown. The righteous will be vindicated. There is hope in this world because Jesus sits at the right hand of God as the conquering king. 
And we can endure whatever suffering God brings our way knowing, knowing that his power will see us through to the end. That's the central purpose of this section of Peter's letter. He, to, to bring encouragement to this tiny minority of Christians who are scattered across this region of Asia Minor, struggling to retain hope in an almost entirely pagan and hostile world. He says, Christ is victorious. Christ is the King. So, Let's dig in. The first major truth here from our text, starting in verse 18, is that Christ is victorious over sin. Christ is victorious over sin. Look with me at verse 18. It says, For Christ also suffered once for, uh, for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, a couple of weeks ago, my father-in-law, he, he twisted his knee really badly. Uh, it swelled up. He was in a lot of pain. And as a result, he found that he had to use a walker for a couple of days. It was super humbling, kind of embarrassing. He couldn't deny that it was helpful, that it was even necessary, but definitely embarrassing and, and awkward. It was a sign to the whole world that he needed help, that he couldn't walk for those few days by himself. Needless to say, he was very glad to be rid of that, and I totally don't blame him. <laughs> because if we're honest, none of us like asking for help. Right? Whatever it is, I want to do it by myself. Asking for help is a sign of weakness. It's a sign of vulnerability. Kids, I don't know about you, but I remember distinctly there was this point when I was a teenager where I thought, you know, I've pretty much arrived. Like, this is it. I think I pretty much know everything at this point in my life. Which we laughed, but I, that was actually a legitimate thought in my head. <laughs> like, I don't really know what else there is that I could possibly learn from an adult at this point. And the sad thing is, is even now, uh, as an adult, I still fall back into that same way of thinking at times that I know everything. But look at the text. There is nothing about our faith that we do for ourselves. It is all God. Look at verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is Peter's way of saying, look, without Jesus, you are spiritually hobbled. You can't walk. You can't go anywhere or do anything without his help. So we say we all want the, the forgiveness and the peace and the, the encouragement and the hope and the help and the blessings that come from being right with God. We just don't like admitting that we need help to get there. But the truth is, according to Peter, we can't get there under our own steam. I'm guessing most of you are fine, upstanding, moral, ethical people. That's a good thing. That is much better <laughs> that way for our society, our communities, our families. Good moral people are great. But nice is not the same as holy. And good enough is not 
enough to get you to God. Which is why this simple declaration in verse 18 is so significant. Who suffered and died for your sins? You didn't. Jesus did that. It's your debt that had to be paid. It's your sin that had to be atoned for. But who actually paid that price? It was Jesus. This verse is incredibly encouraging to me on a daily basis because I am often worried about the, the things that I've done wrong. I'm feeling anxious or bad about the ways that I've fallen short or the people who I'm letting down. And the temptation is constantly there to try and bridge that gap by myself, under my own strength, to try harder or to atone for my own sins in some way by sort of lingering in the guilt that I feel or, or working harder to try and do more good things, to, to bridge that gap. But the reality is, is that we're weak. We need help. And the good news in this passage is that Jesus is there to take us by the hand and gently lead us to God. He led us from darkness into light when we first put our trust in him. And he continues to lead us back to God today when we wander off, when we get lost along the way, when we turn around and head off in the wrong direction. As the good shepherd he is always there waiting to lead us back to the fold, waiting to help us live differently. If we turn back from ourselves and look to him, that is. Well, how do we do that? Well, just earlier this week, I was walking around our neighborhood and, and I was praying and I, I just found myself starting to pray the Lord's Prayer. Very simple, nothing fancy or spectacular, but just praying that God would forgive me of my, of my debts, my trespasses, that he would keep me from temptation, that he would deliver me from evil and temptation, that, that his will would be done, that his kingdom would, be, would, would come, that, that his name would be glorified and magnified. It was simple, but it was incredibly intimate and powerful. I don't usually feel anything when I pray, but for some reason in that moment, for whatever reason, I found the sense of peace and calm as I reached out my hand to God for help. As we look at our text today, that's Peter's point. Christ suffered once for your sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous many, to bring each and every one of us to God, proving that he is victorious over all sin. Now our second major truth today is that Christ is victorious over all evil. So verse 18, you know, it's this nice little warm-up verse here, just to kind of whet our appetite, get us, get us warmed up and ready to get into the complex stuff. And now we're just going to go ahead and jump right into verses 19 and 20, which are perhaps some of the most confusing and complex verses in the entire New Testament. Uh, 
So uh, rather than waste your time, I'm just going to punt here and let, let Martin Luther explain these verses for you, and then we'll unpack his words. So this is Martin Luther. This is a strange text and a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, for I do not certainly know what St. Peter means. Thank you, Martin Luther, so much for being the brilliant theologian. <laughs> okay, well, maybe if we go further back in time, you know, he's a Reformation. Maybe the church, we'll go back to Augustine. Surely Augustine has this pinned down, right? So, he had a friend who wrote him a letter saying, Dear Augustine, what does this mean? Please let me know. Augustine responds, The question which you have proposed to me from the epistle of the apostle Peter is one which, as I think you are aware, is one to perplex me most seriously. Augustine was British. <laughs> you didn't know that, did you? You do now. So Augustine, being the brilliant theologian that he is, he, he does then write a very lengthy explanation, giving his opinion on this text. But he also says to his friend, look, it, honestly, if you or really anyone else can come up with a better ex explanation and help me make sense of this, please write to me and let me know. So all that to say, when it comes to these verses, I think it is probably best to maintain a posture of humility concerning any interpretation that we come up with. If, if Luther and Augustine struggled to come up with clear, definitive answers on this text, then probably we are not going to have all our questions answered as neatly and tidily as we might like. Now, I'm going to dive in here. I'll give you where I land on all of this but we should just have some humility in this process. So, having said all of that, let's look at the text again. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay, there are so many questions that we have to answer here, right? Like, where did Jesus go? Who was he speaking to? Who was it who was in prison? What did he proclaim? What was the result of that proclamation? And what does Noah have to do with any of this? So I don't want to overwhelm you with all the different options I've spent a lot of time reading so many different uh, commentaries and, and, and research on this. But they kind of fall into three big buckets. If you imagine three main theories when it comes to this passage. And the first theory is the one that says, look, this passage here is describing the time between when Jesus died on the cross, he's in the grave, and when he was resurrected, and during that time period, which is what they say this passage is speaking about, Jesus descended into hell, and he preached something to either good people or bad people, it depends on who you're reading, and then he uh, was raised from the dead. 
Okay, that's the first bucket of interpretations. Second big bucket says, well, actually, during this time, uh, this is describing when the pre-incarnate Christ, so Jesus, before he, he, uh, Mary gave birth to him, there are sort of appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. So saying, this is a moment when, when the pre-incarnate Christ spoke through Noah to proclaim uh, either judgment or, or some kind of message to the people alive at the time of Noah. That's the second big bucket of interpretations. And the third big bucket is the one that says, well, actually this passage here speaks of uh, Jesus' death and resurrection and then between the time of his resurrection and ascension, he is going and proclaiming victory over all demonic forces and spirits. So, now wherever you land on this matter, the main point, which is the one I said at the beginning of the sermon, is that Christ is victorious, right? Peter's point here, he's trying to bring encouragement to these young Christians in these small churches in Asia Minor who are enduring persecution and suffering. So his point here is to bring them encouragement by pointing them towards the victory that they have in Christ, that God will prevail over all evil. So as we get down here in the weeds, I don't want you to lose sight of that big picture. All right, so to understand verses 19 and 20, we do have to go back and look at the very end of verse 18, where Peter says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. All right, so what does this mean? Obviously, uh, Jesus physically died. Peter has already made that very clear. So I think Peter is trying to emphasize something else. He's trying to draw out a comparison here between Jesus before his death and Jesus after his death. So when Jesus died, he died in the realm of, of the sinful, fallen world in which we live. But when he was resurrected... He was raised in this new realm, this spiritual realm, the realm of the spirit with a resurrection body, freed from the burdens and confines of this broken world. Think about it. When, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, he was still the same Lazarus, right? I mean, they're like, hey, he's back. Great. <laughs> but he's not different Right? It's the same Lazarus just healed, the same characteristics, and eventually he too died. But Jesus' resurrection was categorically different. This is what Paul talks about in, in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It's sown a natural body but has raised a spiritual body. Remember, Peter actually had the blessing of walking and talking and even eating a meal with the risen Christ. Can you imagine that? Like Peter, who wrote this letter, actually experienced 
the resurrected Jesus in his glorified body in person. And it would have left a startling, incredible impression on him. So I believe that's what Peter is describing here. Jesus suffered and he died in the way that we all will suffer and one day die. But he was made alive in the spiritual realm, meaning in this this new spiritual resurrection body. So with that interpretation in mind, look then at the text again, Continuing, he says, so being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, so resurrection body, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So if verse 18 describes the resurrection, as I believe it does, then whatever's happening in verse 19 must be happening after the resurrection. So, As a result of that, personally, I have a hard time seeing how this passage could then be talking about Jesus descending into hell, because it's talking about Jesus in his resurrection body. Now, this point, some of you may be thinking, okay, but Jonathan, wait a second, the Apostles' Creed, Jesus descended into hell, it says right there, I know, I don't want to... Well, I am going to step on some toes. <laughs> I say, oh, I don't want to step on anyone's toes, and I'm going to step on toes, because I get it. The Apostles' Creed is so well-known. It is so well-loved. If you've grown up in church, I'm sure you've said this Apostles' Creed many times before. I know I have. And who am I to be critiquing the Apostles' Creed, something that has been around for centuries But as it turns out, the Apostles' Creed was not something that was said by Jesus. It's not enshrined in the Bible. It was something that was developed piecemeal over time. And actually, the first clear reference we have to that phrase, he descended into hell, comes from around the year 390 AD, 390 AD, 390 years after the birth of Christ. So, I don't know, 350 years after Peter is writing. And even then, that reference, the person who who wrote that, at the time, he believed that simply meant Jesus was buried. So, the first time that we have a clear indication that someone wrote, he descended into hell, and believed that that meant that he actually went into the place we consider to be hell, was around 650 A.D., 600 years after Peter wrote these verses. So, I think that makes it a little challenging for me to uh, believe that, that the Apostles' Creed is correct in saying that he actually descended into hell. And now, there's a lot more behind that if you want to read a more detailed exposition Wayne Grudem has a great uh, historical explanation of this in his systematic theology, uh, which I think we have over at the table. But So it doesn't make sense to me, but, but like Luther, I want to hold this lightly. Okay? I'm not going to be dogmatic about this and go ripping the Apostles' Creed out of your hymnals or, anything, or Bibles or whatever it is. I, I've read good arguments for why we should keep that phrase and keep the Apostles' Creed. But 
if we're trying to explain the text itself, I don't think that's the best interpretation. Now, I know I just held up Wayne Grudem, but I'm now going to tear him down, show him an equal opportunity offender, because he's the one that believes that uh, uh, it was actually the pre-incarnate Christ speaking through Noah at the, in this passage, and that's what it's describing. But, but that makes even less sense to me. Because there seems to be a clear progression of events here in this text. So verse 18, Christ suffered for sins. He, he died in this physical realm of the body. He was then raised in this new resurrection body. And then he went and did the proclaiming. So I have a hard time squeezing in there a moment where Jesus goes back in time. And now we're suddenly talking about the pre-incarnate Christ preaching through Noah. It could be. He makes good arguments for it. I just don't think they're the best arguments. So, I just punched a hole in bucket number one, punched a hole in bucket number two. So, clearly, there's only one bucket left. This is the one that I like the best, the prettiest bucket of all. So let me explain. I think that, that when we wonder, like, where did then Jesus go? We now need to look at verses 19 and 20. So, I told you, this is a complex passage. So we, we, we are going to get down into the nuts and bolts here. And this is a place where knowing a little bit of Greek does actually help explain the text. Because the specific Greek word that's translated spirits here, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, that word spirits, it's almost never used in the Bible to talk about human beings. Like we use that word indiscriminately in English, in common usage. But in Greek, that Greek word is almost never used to talk about human beings. In fact, it is almost exclusively used to talk about spiritual beings, spirits, I, you know, the Holy Spirit or, or demonic spirits. So think about it. Jesus is being led by the Spirit. Jesus, he's casting out spirits. That's the word that's being used here. So as a side note, that confirms for me that any proclaiming that Jesus is doing here, he's not doing that to humans, whether at the time of Noah or trapped in hell or wherever it might be. I think from the text, Peter, uh, uh, Jesus is proclaiming to uh, spiritual beings, the angels, fallen angels. Now, the second Greek word that's helpful to have here, uh, spirits in prison. So that word prison, does that mean hell? or Because that's the way some people have interpreted it. But actually, that word prison, again, in the New Testament, is only ever used to speak of a prison, like, like think bars, <laughs> a jail cell, okay? There are specific words in the New Testament, Sheol or Hades or Tartarus, or, that describe the place where the dead live. In fact, the only place where uh, this word prison doesn't describe a literal prison for humans is in Revelation, which talks about Babylon being a, a prison or a haunt for demonic 
uh, unclean spirits. Or in Revelation 20, where John says that when the thousand years are ended, then Satan will be released from his prison. Though it's still a, a sort of prison, but, but it's not for humans. This is for demonic spiritual uh, forces. So it makes most sense to me then, taking those two things together, to see this reference as speaking, uh, uh, Jesus proclaiming to demonic spirits who are under some kind of restraining power of God. This is backed up by, by 2 Peter and Jude, which talk about demonic spirits being held in, in chains of gloomy darkness, restrained by God. But what then? So we talked about where Jesus went and, and who he's speaking to, but then what is he proclaiming exactly? If he's talking to demonic spirits, he's not sharing the gospel. <laughs> this is not good. There is no good news if you are a fallen angel. There is only bad news. And this bad news, this proclamation of Jesus, bad news for them, good news for us. It's a proclamation of total, absolute, complete victory. You're done. <laughs> it is over. Game over. Uh, look at verse 22 where we started. Jesus, seated on the throne, all demonic forces subjected to him. I don't want to be too irreverent, but I sort of imagine the, the visual image for me is Jesus doing a touchdown dance in their face. He's like spinning the ball or whatever. Like, and there's no, God's not like throwing a flag on him for taunting. It's like, you can taunt Satan all you want, okay? That's what he's doing here. But that does leave us another question. What is up with the reference to Noah? And how does that tie in with all of this? Look at the beginning of verse 20. It's talking about these, these demonic, uh, these, these spirits who are in prison. I mean, he says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. All right, the single most cataclysmic event in the entire Old Testament has to have been the flood, right? I mean, it's this horrific, horrifying event. Uh, some of you probably remember the tsunami in Southeast Asia, 2004, and the pictures, just horrifying. And now imagine something on a global scale. It's almost unbelievable. And the flood was, on the one hand, a terrifying reminder of God's holy and righteous judgment on sin. But on the other hand, it was also a witness to God's gracious and loving mercy in, in preserving a faithful remnant. And as such, I think it would have held a particular appeal for the small churches of faithful believers who, who felt trapped in the middle of a world that was so hostile to their beliefs. Perhaps they too, like Noah, felt, felt isolated and alone, awkward, different, awaiting the judgment of God on their enemies while, 
while at the same time praying for his gracious deliverance from their suffering and trials. But the connections actually even go a little deeper than that because at the time when uh, Peter was writing, the prevailing Jewish belief was that the strange phrase, maybe some of you remember in, in Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4, there's this strange little phrase that talks about the sons of God, right? And there's all this debate. What, who are these sons of God? And the prevailing belief at the time Peter was writing was those sons of God refer to fallen angels, fallen angels. And it was the influence of those fallen angels on mankind that in large measure then precipitated the flood judgment of God. Now, I admit there's, there's a lot of different opinions about, about how to interpret those verses in Genesis 6, but if those mysterious sons of God are indeed fallen angels, then that fits really well with Peter's understanding here in verse 20, that Jesus preached to the demonic forces who formerly did not obey, fallen angels, leaving their place, coming, causing havoc on earth, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, right? Genesis 6 says, God says, you know, 120 years, talks about God's patience, waiting before the flood. So putting all these pieces together, and it, it's a lot. This is a big puzzle we're trying to construct here. I think then Peter is describing Jesus' suffering and dying for our sins, but then having been resurrected, going and pronouncing judgment to all the fallen angels and all the spiritual forces and powers in this world who are now subjected to his rule. Having worked through all of that stuff, okay, very interesting, fascinating stuff, why does any of this matter? Well, first of all, I think it's a humbling reminder that most of the time we're just not going to understand what God is up to. We're not. It's way above your pay grade. Like, God is working on a timeline that we cannot possibly begin to understand. We talk about eternity as if we have some way of understanding it, and we don't. Here's a plan. If this is an accurate interpretation of the text, God's working out a plan from the time of Noah all the way through to the time of Jesus all the way through to us today. I can't wrap my head around that. But we might expect that to be the case when we're talking about a God who is eternal and holds the entire universe together in his hands. But at the same time, this is also an encouraging reminder to me that God sees and rescues faithful individuals. He's not just working at this macro scale, but also in the micro scale. God saw Noah's faithfulness specifically. Just Noah, out of all of humanity alive at that time, he saw Noah. When Noah probably felt, I'm all alone and no one else sees me, God saw him. In the same way God saw the suffering and the persecution endured by Peter's audience, even when they felt all alone, this teeny tiny little clump of little house churches scattered across this enormous region. 
surrounded by pagans. He saw them. And God is just as aware of the tiniest little details of your lives as well. We think, well, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just a regular person. I'm nothing special. I'm going to go mow the lawn and go to work and fix the peeling paint and clean up the garbage. And God sees your faithfulness. And his victory will bring vindication and encouragement and hope to us. We can have true legitimate hope in this world because Christ has secured that victory for us. Not just big picture, but you specifically, each and every one of us specifically. Now our third and final truth today, and this is a longer passage, so that's We've got a lot that we're trying to cover here, but our third and final truth today is that Christ's victory is represented in baptism. Because there's this one final part here in our passage that talks about baptism that is so confusing for many people. Now, a few months ago, if you remember, if many of you are with us on a camping trip, and I, I don't know if you remember, I think it was Saturday night, we went down to the beach. And Pastor Michael baptized little Hosanna Meeks. It was this awesome moment. We all gathered up on the beach, and, and Pastor Michael held her and, and asked her if she you know, had put her trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And she said, yes. And he said, I baptize you, and he dunked her under the water. It was amazing. But what actually happened in that moment? Right? If I asked you, what does baptism mean? Most of us are good Baptists, so would say, What's well, an external sign of internal transformation or it's an act of obedience before God or something like that, right? But here in our passage, Peter seems to be saying something quite different. Baptism now saves you. And there are many churches and denominations today that, that believe this to be quite literally the case, that it is that in that moment of baptism, that you are saved. So when Pastor Michael put Hosanna under the water, that was the time when she was saved. We don't believe that, but some churches believe that, and it certainly seems like that's what Peter is saying. Right? But if you look a little closer, I don't think that's the case. So you might think that the comparison he's drawing here is between the salvation of Noah and the salvation of believers through baptism. But the comparison is a little bit different. In verse 20, we read that, that uh, Noah and his family were safely brought through water. And in verse 21, he says, Baptism now saves you. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know this may be a little subtle. We've been going a long time, but I really want you to see this. The comparison here is through water and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The waters of baptism may symbolize the waters of the flood, but it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ alone that has the power to bring about salvation. Now, I know that's what we believe as a church, but, but, 
but you might say, well, what proof is there in the text that this is actually what Peter is trying to say? Because Jonathan, it really does say that baptism now saves you. Well, just looking at Peter, how does he start the entire letter? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. How? Through baptism? No. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He couldn't be more emphatic. This is the very first point he makes in his letter. You are saved through the glorious, powerful, effective resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and makes the same point over and over and over again. In verse 18 and 19, they're ransomed by the blood of Christ, right? In verse 21, uh, verses uh, 20 and 21, the only way that they've become believers in God is through Jesus. In verse 23, he says, they've been born again. How? Through the living and abiding word of God. In chapter 2, Right? It was Jesus who bore their sins on the tree, who healed their wounds. It was Jesus who saved them out of their sin. And then just one verse or two verses prior, the beginning of our passage today, verse 18, it was Jesus who died to bring us to God. So in context, in Peter's letter, just his letter, without going to Paul or anywhere else, it's clear that is Jesus who saves, not any kind of external religious rite or ritual. Jesus is the one who brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. But there's more because the analogy to Noah itself further emphasizes God's work in doing it, right? God's one who chooses Noah. God's the one who tells them to build the ark. God's the one who sends the flood. God's the one who seals them in the ark. God's the one who brings them safely through the flood uh, and to safety. It was all God. And big picture, Peter seems to be saying, look, just as Noah and his family were brought safely or saved by God through the waters, so now we as Christians will be brought safely through suffering, persecution, and even death, and into the presence of God, not by a wooden ark, not by baptism, but by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, symbolized in our baptism. Now, Noah and his family undoubtedly felt isolated and alone as they were working on the ark, right? Oddballs, outcasts, strangers, And today, anyone who tries to live like Christ will experience some of those same feelings of rejection. When you turn the other cheek, when you respond to anger with gentleness, when you forgive instead of holding a grudge, when you give to others rather than grabbing for yourself, when you serve instead of seeking to be served, when you constantly try to show love and kindness and receive nothing but criticism and complaints back, when you refuse to play power games or mind games or emotional games, and as a result, you fail to get the promotion or fail to be included as part of the in-crowd. Power, fame, fortune, these things generally don't come to those who are, like Jesus, poor in spirit. Humility is not going to get you ahead in life. 
But that is the cost of discipleship. Sacrifice means giving something up. It's hard. It doesn't matter how old you are, following Jesus will always be difficult because that's what it means to carry a cross. But, and this is the encouragement from Peter today, this kind of suffering is somehow still good. And Peter wants you to know that if you're trusting in Jesus, then ultimately you are on the only path that leads to life. And at the end of that road, a victorious celebration awaits you at the finish line. That's what makes baptism so special. It's a tangible, visible, physical, public reminder of God's promise to rescue us from the chaotic storms of life. The water that once represented death, judgment for sin, has been conquered definitively once and for all. So when Pastor Michael brought Hosanna up out of the water, she embraced that victory that was already hers in Christ Jesus. There is so much more that we could say about this passage. So much more. But I just want to remind you in closing what I said at the beginning. Keep the focus on Christ, on the main point that Peter is making here. This is about Jesus' victory and the victory that we have in him. All the other stuff, stake out your position, do the research, but hold on to whatever place you land with humility. Hold it loosely, but cling tightly to Jesus because he has conquered all evil, all sin, all demonic forces, even death itself, and will one day bring you and I both safely into glory as a result. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for this confusing but really incredibly encouraging reminder of your absolute and total victory over all forces, seen and unseen, in this world, past, present, and future. And Lord, we're thankful that you count us as your own. In Jesus' name, amen.